morning. Good morning. If you guys are like, you know what? I would love to get a little closer and have be able to see you better. Feel free to come a little closer. Um, it's pretty far out there, you know. Um, anyway, as I, you know, as we're going into the movie season, I love movies. I love that we are returning back into the theaters and stuff. Um, as I think about movies, I was like, you know what? We love the idea of teams, don't we? We love the idea of teams. We know from books and movies that it is a team with diverse skills and gifts that can defeat the bad guy and win the day. It is teamwork that makes the dream work, right? Mario, wait, go back to Mario. Mario does not beat Bowser by himself. He beats Princess Peach. He beats Donkey Kong, right? Like, I don't want to ruin the movie, but you know he beats the team. Sandra Bullock cannot steal the most expensive diamond necklace without her specialized team of extremely skilled thieves, right? And if Wolverine was the only X-Men, everybody would be slashed in a bit of passion. But thank goodness for Charles Xavier and his team that works together to create a unified fight for the better world, right? We love teams. We believe in them. We know that it takes a group of people to have a greater impact. And yet, in reality, teams are messy. Right? It would be so much easier to do something on our own. Key example, how many of you guys had to do group projects when you were in school? Right? Teams are messy. They were not my favorite things to do when I was in school. Right? On paper, having different teams would make your, like, your project so well-rounded, you know, from all these different angles. In reality, it creates conflict and mess. It leaves one person doing most of the work, and the rest give up because that one person is a total control freak. Control freak right here, right? It is hard to work with others who are different than us, because we are looking at everyone through our lens and saying, why aren't you more like me? Because if you were more like me, we would do so much better. And yet, we all know that it actually takes different gifts and skills to be able to do something beautiful, right? And when all those things are working together in simpatico, it creates something magical, right? But in reality, it's a little messy. We are in a series called Gifted for More. And Joel kicked off with um, the idea that everyone is a gift, that God created us all with gifts, right? Different gifts, but that we are all created beautifully uniquely, creatively, by a creative God. And that because of that, we are gifts to one another and we are gifts to the world. And that God has called us not just to have these gifts to be like, wow, aren't I amazing? But to actually share them and to share them amongst one another and to work together. Right? Last week, Don talked about uh, what it would look like for us to work together and use our gifts, not just for ourselves, but to build something and to um, bless others in, in this church and, and outside of the church, right? And the intention is to share it. Now, we have an assessment online that you can take, and I will say right now, there are a lot of assessments out there to figure out what your gifts and your skills are, right? But this one, um, it just gives us common language. And what I do like about this one is that it doesn't merely focus on spiritual gifts, and it doesn't, doesn't just use the lingo of spiritual gifts, but it talks about a combination of skills, spiritual gifts, and natural abilities. Um, and then it uses more of a normal, common, 
vernacular to explain it. So there are 12 categories, and here are some of the skills that they talk about. Some of the gifts that they talk about. They talk about artistic skills and gifts, intercultural gifts, communication gifts, financial gifts. Those are just four on the top of, of, of what those 12 categories are. So if you haven't taken the assessment yet, we have a QR code, that, uh, and, or you can go up to see Mondays to go ahead and take that assessment and figure out, okay, what are, what are my gifts in that? Now last week, like I said, Dom talked about um, sharing our gifts, and he invited us to consider two things. First, he said, how might you use your gifts to share here in our community? And second, he said, how might we be asking for help from someone? who wants to use their gifts and bless you in your life, right? Because sometimes it is really easy for us to just say, well, I'm going to go ahead and use my gifts, and here's how I'm going to serve other people, but I don't necessarily need to be served, right? Because that is the harder thing. And so the second invitation was really an invitation for um, other people to come serve us, right? And ask for help when we need it. And it reminded me of this quote from Jenny Allen from the book Find Your People. She says this, we know we need each other in a million different ways in life, but those of us who don't battle with codependency often fall into the trap of living independently. At our very core, God built us to be fragile, finite, needy creatures, so we would come to him, and so we would lean into the strengths and gifts of one another. God does not choose to use flawless experts who have sharpened their gifts, but frail and perfect rookies Rookies is a new word that my son just learned, right? Because I guess he was playing a game and he did something and his friend said, that's such a rookie move. He's like, what's rookie? Right? And they kind of meant it negatively, but here it's like, man, it's okay to be a rookie because God uses rookies. God chooses, I mean, look at the disciples, right? Total rookie moves. But he uses frail and perfect rookies that desire to see God's perfect kingdom come. And he makes it perfect not because of rookies, but because of his perfection, right? We are all mixed bags, and on our own, we can make individual contributions, but together with different gifts, God magnifies some of its parts and creates something incredible and beautiful. He does it again and again in scripture, but this morning, let's look at how he does it in the early church, okay, in Acts. So if you have your Bibles with me, um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts 18. If not, I already have it up on um, the PowerPoint up here. Okay, Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed in the court, where they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the work. For it says here in a different translation, he was devoted exclusively to teaching the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God. I don't know about you, but I often think of Paul as this Lone Ranger superstar, right? Who goes from country to country spreading the good news, and he's just like, I said, I get sent into prison. No big deal. I get stoned. I jump back up, you know, like, and he's this one guy that just goes from place to place. He's just this superstar. And he is one man with specific gifts just like you and me. But for this, we see him go into a bunch of different places. And he's blocked, right? He goes in and it's like he's opposed. And so he goes out, he goes into another place. He shares the good news. Some people convert. And then there's opposition, and so he has to leave. And then he goes into Philippi, and then he shares the good news, and he meets some people, and it looks like, oh, maybe I can stay here. And then there's opposition, and so he has to go. And then he goes into Athens, and he has some riveting conversations, and some people follow Jesus. And then there's opposition, and so he goes. And then now we see that he comes to Corinth. And what we see in Corinth is totally different than what we've seen elsewhere. Right? Because first of all, we see that he meets up with two people. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. And we're told that they are of the same trade. They're in the same field of work. Right? They're both te- they're all tent makers, which basically just meant that they were they worked with leather. Okay, they didn't just make tents, they worked with leather, right? And here's the thing, you know, we think about, okay, well he had a trade. He he was artistic in the way that he was working. Um, but because he was traveling from place to place, he probably didn't have most of his tools with him. And what was happening with Aquila and Priscilla was that they were permanently relocating to Corinth. And so they probably brought all their equipment and all their tools, and they knew that they were going to stay a while. And so they were setting up shop, a new store of leather work in Corinth. And so when they met Paul, they were like, oh, we. We're, we do the same thing. Why don't we hire you and you can work with us? And in addition to that, they lived together. And so Paul experienced some sort of stability in Corinth because he now was financially supported with his new job and he had a place to live with Aquila and Priscilla. Later on, we know that Aquila and Priscilla become major players as church leaders and they go on to disciple and train Apollos who becomes an excellent teacher in his church of Corinth. Right? But it all starts here. And then we see Silas and Timothy show up from Macedonia. And then at that point we're told that Paul, who had just been teaching on the Sabbath, now devotes himself exclusively to teaching. What is it about these guys showing up that frees Paul up to do this exclusively instead of merely on Sundays or, in the, or on the Sabbath? These guys were his ministry partners in Troas and Macedonia, and later on, in the different letters in the churches, we see that they are mentors and teachers and church leaders in these early churches, right? And sometimes I just think of Silas and Timothy as like just young disciples of Paul. Like they give nothing, Paul gives everything. And you know, like they're just people that Paul has to also pour into, in addition to everything else that they're doing. Right? But actually, I think that Paul needed them, just like they needed Paul. But there were probably two things that were happening. 
right? One, they were probably giving, bringing a financial gift from Macedonia that then freed Paul up to be able to work exclusively in preaching instead of having to work in his role as a tent maker. But in addition to that, I think that they were providing some assistance and some help in his daily needs to be able to help free him up to preach. Um, it reminds me of this woman, Henrietta Mears. I don't know how many of you guys know Henrietta Mears. She was born in 1890, right? So we're talking like way back when, all right? She was hired on as the director of Christian education, Sunday schools, in 1920s at Hollywood Press in LA, all right? She grew that Sunday school ministry from 400 people every Sunday to 6,000 people in her 30 years of ministry there. Sunday school, guys, Sunday school. She was teaching them to love the Bible and to learn the Bible really well, to just soak it up. She led men and women to be lifelong disciples of Jesus and giving them a lifelong perspective of what it looks like Jesus for their whole lives and sent over 400 people into full-time ministry in their lives. Amongst those people were Billy Graham, Bill Wright, the founder of Crew, and Jay Rayburn, the founder of Young Life. She would do that on Sundays, she would do that throughout the week in her home. She never married and she devoted herself to Jesus' call to make disciples of all people. This was at a time when there were not a lot of women who were leading in the church. There were not a lot of women who were going before her that were influencing her and teaching her how to do that, right? Now that is a lot of women's shoulders, even with a team of Sunday school teachers mentored and trained by Henrietta Pierce. But luckily, she had a sister, Margaret. And Margaret moved with her to LA when she got the job. And she saw that God had a calling on her life and had some very specific gifts that she had to teach and raise up disciples. And so Margaret, who had gifts in management and critical thinking gifts, which are two of the 12 that we see, um, she said, I want to free you up to do what you do best. And so I'm going to take care of all your scheduling, all your traveling, all your basic needs, even stuff like laundry, meals, and all of that, so that you can do what you do best as I do what I do best. There is no way that Henrietta Mears would have the impact that she has in Kingdom Legacy if it wasn't for her sister Margaret. And yet we don't usually hear about Margaret. We hear about Henrietta. Maybe some of you guys are like, you've never heard about Henrietta, right? Um, but if it wasn't for Margaret, if she had not stepped up to partner with Henrietta Mears, there's no way that would have happened. So thank God for people like Margaret. Thank God for people like Silas and Timothy. We have no idea what they had to do to free Paul up. We just think, oh, it's a financial thing. There's no way that would have been true, right? As a result of Paul having a whole team around him, all using their gifts in intention and generosity, they meet this man, right? He's trying to teach the Jews, and he experiences opposition. And usually at this point in his missionary journey, he would have left Corinth, but he doesn't because he has a team of support around him. And instead, what happens is that he says, I'm going to now teach the Gentiles. No blood on my hands here, right? I'm going to go to the Gentiles and let us see if they are open to the gospel. And they meet this guy in their neighborhood who lives next to the synagogue, and he becomes a Christian. And then it says that 
Crispus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, which by the way, he has a Roman name, and so he's not actually Jewish, right? And his whole family become Christians. Again, right? Oh, the next door neighbor of this guy that becomes Christian? Okay, well, they hear and experience the gospel, right? And so they become Christians. And then, as you see, there's all these people in Corinth that become Christians. And from that comes the Corinthian church that we read about in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? In reality, what Paul does, that because he is a community, because he is in a team of support, living and working with Aquila and Priscilla, supported by Silas and Timothy, having people who meet his daily needs like housing, food, administrative needs, having people in the city who knew the laws and the ways of the citizens, um, we see something beautiful get born out of that city. And what we see is that Paul gets to stay there for a year and a half, right? Building and discipling and mentoring people in their faith. Now, just because we are aware of our gifts, it does not mean that we use them with intention. To steward and foster them. That is a choice we can make, right? Some of you might have an intercultural gift, which just means that you're good at relating to other cultures and groups that you can enter into different places and it feels fluid to you. And you love learning new things of other cultures, you're good at learning languages, you're curious about other spaces, and you are a bridge builder in those spaces, right? But even as you have that gift, it takes intention to sharpen that and put yourself in a place to grow in that, right? It doesn't mean that like, oh, well, I tested that I have that gift, then I must be an expert in that. No, it doesn't mean that, right? It takes intention to use it, to practice it, to read books about other cultures, to take language classes, continuously place yourself in situations where you can be curious and ask questions. Right? Some of you have spent significant time honing and sharpening your gift. Perhaps you have a gift of entrepreneurship, and it is your job to create new opportunities and set strategies to meet goals. Whether or not that is like literally your nine to five job, or that is something that you've just been practicing on the side since you were a kid, or you went to school for it, you have been practiced in it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have been generous in it, right? Awareness is the first step, but then it also takes intention, and then finally generosity. God's intention and invitation to all of us with our gifts is to be aware of them, right? Which is why we're like, take the assessment. Help figure out what gifts you have, right? But also to be intentional with them and then generous with them. They're meant to be shared and offered as gifts. How do we enter into every space with a mindset to make it better, right? To see ourselves as gifts in these spaces. God does not discount us, nor should we discount ourselves. What if we entered every space, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplace, our kids' soccer team, our families, our volunteer opportunities, asking, how can I help you? Now, I know some of you are like, no. <laughs> I do not have enough time. I don't even want to ask that question, right? I know we do not have an infinite amount of time, right? And if we gave all of ourselves to every single space, we would run dry. But I think too often, we are protective of our time. And we don't even want to ask the question because we don't want the responsibility. We just, I don't want to even ask. 
Because then everybody's going to expect something out of me, and I don't want anyone to expect anything out of me, right? So it's just easier to be an indifferent bystander or a cynical critic. It is easier to be an indifferent bystander or a cynical critic than to step in and say, how can I help here? How can I help here? So maybe we can't volunteer to head up the science fair at our kids' school, right? But how can we help with what we have to make the school more beautiful, run smoother, solve some problems? That, I believe, is what generosity looks like after we are aware and intentional with our gifts. Now, two of the organizations that we partner with already kind of think around this like this already, right? We volunteer with safe families, and they know that to help a family thrive, they don't just need a family coach. They also need a host family. And they don't just need a host family. They need a church community to support those people and supply them with um, love and support and time and meals and, and diapers, right? Like, it takes a lot of people with a lot of different gifts and a lot of different skills, right? They know that. They call that the circle of support. And we also volunteer with Neighborhood House. And they see the problem of poverty and they say, well, food security is not the only thing that's going to solve poverty here in our neighborhood. It's going to take more than that. It's going to take job training. It's going to take tutoring. And all of these require different skill sets, different gifts, different people, right? And so even as we think about all these different spaces, we know, right? We are already experiencing. If you look at the workplace, you know that it does not take one kind of person with one kind of gift. Right? And if there's only that, you see all the gaps of like, we need someone in here that actually has management skills. Right? We need someone in here that's paying attention to details because we're always running out of toilet paper. Right? We need someone in here that's artistic, that can think creatively in this space. Right? You probably are aware of all these things, but the question is, when we step into these spaces, and are we asking, um, what if we didn't just do our job based on our job description? Or we're like, hey, this is what's expected of me, so I'm going to do a minimum of that to get by and get paid. What if you went in every day wanting to make your workplace more of a safe space where people are heard and seen, more beautiful and spacious, more successful? Perhaps it doesn't all get fixed. And certainly most of it isn't in your hands to fix. But what is when you build God's kingdom there? Will you make it better? Will you be intentional and generous with your gifts there? And one last example of this. Um, a while ago, I went to Detroit for a missions project. And I was volunteering with a group called World Impact when he works into, in, um, um, in, uh, sorry, uh, communities of poverty and crime, right? And I was volunteering with them in South Central, and then we were going to Detroit. And um, the uh, person who was heading it up introduced me to these two old women. Um, they were African American, seventy-five-year-old women that you know were sitting on their porch, have been best friends since they were kids. They grew up in Southwest Detroit all their lives. And as I was learning about Detroit, which I didn't really know a whole lot about Detroit. Um, that area was just crime-ridden. 
There were so many people that were fleeing the city and their houses were not worth anything that they were just abandoning it. They weren't even selling it. They were like, it's not worth anything, we're just gonna leave. And so there were all these abandoned buildings all up and down the streets. The streets themselves had not been paved and taken care of for years. There were potholes all over the place. And people's cars were messed up. Right? Like, because of these road conditions, and also because they didn't have the resources to just keep up with the basic maintenance and care of their cars. That took them to work every day, that took them to give them a certain kind of freedom that they needed, right? So these two women um, were telling me about what happened when they retired. Right? They grown up in this neighborhood their whole lives. And they asked God two things. God, should we stay here? There's all these people around us that we grew up with that are leaving this neighborhood. Should we leave too? There's nothing that this neighborhood is giving us at this point, right? It is, in fact, a little more dangerous for us to live here. Um, and then the second question is, what will you have us do now that we're in retirement? What do you have for us? How can we help? And what God said was, you know, stay in this neighborhood not leave. And then the second thing they said from God was that they they needed people to be mechanics in this community. And so as 70-year-old women, they went back to school in community college and learned how to be mechanics. They were like, we need some people that are going to change with people's oil and change their brake pads and they won't even get under your car and change their tires, right? And they became the people that were like, hey, Joe! You know, they'll, they'll see Joe driving down the street. Joe, I think it's time for you to change your brake pad soon, isn't it? I'll come over later this week and I'll, I'll do that for you, honey. You know, and then other people come to them as the mechanics say, I have this problem with my car. Like, what do you think it is? And they just fidget with it and figure it out. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind because there were two things that I assumed. I assumed one, that by the time I was retiring and I was old, I could do whatever I wanted because I earned my time, right? I worked my whole life, I contributed to society, and now this is me time. I get to go on as many cruises as I want, I can take whatever little or much money that I saved up, and now it was gonna be about me, right? The second thing I assumed and thought was that by the time I'm 70, I can't learn anything new. I've just learned enough. My brain has filled up. I can't learn anything new, right? Don't ask me to learn something new. These women pushed against society and said, no, this is not my time. God has a call on my life and I will do it to the end. And I will be obedient to him to the end. This is lifelong discipleship, not I don't retire from being a Christian. Right? And so they said yes to Jesus and whatever they called him to do. Then there was no point where they said, we don't get to ask, how can I help here? And so they said yes to Jesus. But also, in addition to that, they said, we're not too old to learn a new skill. We have been given the gift of time now as we've retired. We have been given the gift of intercultural relationships that we've had our whole lives. We've watched some of these kids grow up and stay in here. We've called them out of trouble over and over again, and now how can we serve? They went back to school and they learned a new trade. I was like, I wanna be you. 
I want to be 75 years old and under somebody's car. Metaphorically. Right? But, or maybe literally, who knows? Right? I don't want to ever get tired of doing what it is that God calls me to do. I don't want to ever get tired of asking, how can I make this place more beautiful or useful? So I don't ever stop using it. And I, I hope that we long for that. I hope that we long to see more beauty in the world because of what we're saying yes to. And that we would be able to see that as we bring all our gifts together. So my question for us this morning is, what kind of impact do you want to see? Because on our own, as we're just kind of holding our gifts to ourselves, or our time, really, which is really one of our most valuable commodities, right, to ourselves, how do we say, what kind of impact do we want to see? And how can we not just be aware and intentional with our gifts, but generous with our gifts? And how do we partner with one another to see the kind of kingdom impact that I believe that we have capacity to see? Right? Because we're not going to be able to do it on our own. I don't care how sharp your talents are, like Wolverine. There is no amount of gifts that we individually have to be able to see the kind of impact in kingdom building that we, we, we are called to build and see. Amen?